1914, by act of Congress, it was President Woodrow Wilson who proclaimed that on the second Sunday in the month of May, we would then publicly celebrate mothers. A hundred years later, here we are, really celebrating what God told us to do thousands of years ago when he said we should honor mothers. So let me add my voice to all those who've already expressed it today. Moms, happy Mother's Day. We are just so grateful for you. But I also want to say to those of you who are here, and maybe this isn't an easy day for you, because your mother may no longer be with us. This might even be the first Mother's Day where she isn't here. Some of you, you have an estranged relationship with your mom or with your children. Or maybe you don't have children. And yet you've chosen to kind of put your hard hat on and clench your jaw and come in here today anyway. And for you who have done that, we are grateful that you are here. And we celebrate all ladies today on this special Mother's Day. Today, what I want to talk about is something we don't talk about often enough in church. A lot of times we talk about things like this. If you do something bad, then something bad will happen. If you do things wrong, then wrong things will happen. In other words, we talk about the consequences of our actions, right? We teach our kids these things. It's important. What we don't often talk about is what about when you do things right and then things go wrong? What about when you do the good things and life goes badly? I'll give you an example. It was about five or six years ago in our family. We were really kind of getting into this camping, and we had this little pop-up trailer. Any of you guys camp? Anybody camp? And Yeah. All right, wow, there you go. I love it. Well, we like to go camping, but we had decided, because of my wife and four kids, it was time to go from a pop-up trailer. We decided we wanted an indoor bathroom. We thought, well, let's take it a step up. Now, some of you are already kind of judging, going, that's not real camping. And I get it, and I respect you, but we were certain we wanted a bathroom, and you know what? We're glad we got one. And so we decided we were going to go. We lived in Southern California at the time, and we drove over to Phoenix to pick up our new camper trailer. And when we got there, the person who was selling it to us said, now listen, you're used to a pop-up trailer, and this has a lot more weight to it. That means it has stabilizer bars, and it's a little more difficult. The, the hitch is just a little more complex. So let me show you how to do this. Well, I'm thinking, I've got to drive all the way back to Southern California. We're going to stay the night at Joshua Tree National Park. And I'm thinking, we've got to get there before it's dark. We have, a, we have some dinner plans. So here's what I'm thinking. How hard can it be? I don't need the tutorial. Let's just get on the road. We need to get back before it gets dark. He's like, look, I'm telling you, let me just at least show you a couple of things. And I'm thinking, all right, do the thing, but I want to go. And so I'm kind of half pay attention. Well, my wife, who's wiser than me, she came out of the truck because she could kind of tell what might be happening. And so she began to really pay attention. I remember she had her notes app in the phone, and she began to really take good notes. In fact, she even took several pictures along the way of each movement, and she was asking questions so that she knew how to do it really well. So we make the trek back, and we get there just before it's dark. We've called ahead. we got a camping spot, and they know what kind of trailer we have, so they've got just the right one. We back in. I get out, and guess what? I can't get the thing unhitched. Just like the guy said would happen. But you would think, well, yeah, but you did something wrong, and therefore something wrong happened, right? So my wife gets out, and she begins to kind of walk through the way the guy told us to do it. She's got the picture, she's got the notes, and we're going step by step. And guess what? It's still not coming off. She did the right thing, but the wrong thing's happening here, right? 
And so we begin to have one of those camping famous intense conversations. Any of you had any of those when you go camping and you own it? Yeah, those are unique conversations. And so it's about 30 or 45 minutes that go by. And by now it's about dark. And there was one man who across the way decided to come over. He could kind of tell he needed to save our marriage, right? (laughs) So he walks across and he says, hey, are you having a little trouble? And I'm thinking, okay, don't even start with that question. Clearly, right? And so he begins to help us and get within minutes, he's got it figured out and we weren't doing a couple of little things right and he's able to kind of get us unhitched. So then we go through the work of setting up camp and we're thinking we still have time for a nice dinner. I think we can pull this off and then we go to plug it in and guess what? It's the wrong plug. That's a 30 amp. We have a 50 amp. It doesn't work. They've sent us to the wrong place. They don't have an adapter. We don't have an adapter. It's pitch black. And you know what they said? Sorry about that. You're going to have to rehitch, go to a different camp and then unhook it in the pitch black dark. I'm like, we did everything right and everything is going wrong. Well, needless to say, that night, our nice dinner, I'm pretty sure, was hot dogs in a microwave. And that was our camping experience, even though we felt like we had done, or Ginger had done, everything right. You have this happen all the time, don't you? Like, maybe you're planning to go on work in the morning, you're going to leave in plenty of time, and all of a sudden there's going to be traffic jam. You're going to have a flat tire, and you're going to be late. Even though you did everything right, everything's going to go wrong. Maybe you're in one of those places where you're interviewing for a job and you do everything right. You have the qualifications and yet things just don't go right. Maybe you've been in the place where you eat healthy and you exercise for years and all of a sudden you still come down with the disease. You still get that prognosis that you were trying to avoid. You did everything right, but things still went wrong. You see, it gets more complicated for those of us who are Christians and follow God because sometimes we can even obey a good God And things will still go bad. And that's where it gets a little more difficult, doesn't it? When you're obeying a good God and things still go bad. Think about it. Some of you are here and you're moms and you have tried to pour into your kids. You've tried to pour love into your kids. Yeah, you're not perfect, but you're trying to pour good things into them. You maybe even brought them to church regularly. They've grown up. You've done what feels like everything right. And they've still made bad decisions. You've got a marriage and you've tried to pour into it, but it doesn't seem to be going where you want it to go. Maybe you've lived a life where you thought Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright would come along and you've tried to do everything right and it just hasn't happened. With children, it just hasn't happened. With your career, with some of your dreams, you feel like you're being obedient to God and those dreams aren't being fulfilled. It's like, wait a minute, God, if I obeyed you, I thought you would give me something better than what I'm experiencing. What do you do when you're obeying a good God? But things still go bad. And maybe you're here today and you're in the place of wrestling with that and disappointed, a little discouraged on this Mother's Day. We're about to look at a story. And if that's you, you're going to relate with the two people we're about to look at as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Today, we look at Acts chapter 4. And I hope you'll look with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew. Just pull that out. If you don't know where Acts is, like any book, just look at the table of contents. You'll find the book of Acts. We're going to look at chapter 4. We're calling the series, Where Do You Go From Here? Where do you go from here when you do everything right, but things still turn out wrong? You see, in this story... These two people we're going to look at today, all they did was obey God, and everything turned out wrong. If you know the story of the church of Jesus Christ, what's interesting about this story is everything is going great 
until it falls apart today in Acts chapter 4. I hope if you're discouraged today, if you're barely hanging on today, and I know some of you are, that there will be massive encouragement that flows into your heart as a result of what God shows you in his word today. Acts chapter 4, let's look at it together. It begins, knowing that in Acts chapter 3 we saw last week there was a crippled man from birth, 40 years old, and he was healed. Everybody's excited. Peter's preaching his second sermon, if you remember. Everybody's pumped, except for a couple of people. We're about to find out who those people are who aren't as excited. Acts chapter 4, it says, the priest and the captain of the temple guard, meaning the head guard, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees, these were the wealthy intellectual people in authority, they came to Peter and John. These are the two people that we saw last week who healed the crippled man. While they were speaking, everybody's excited and praising God over the miraculous healing. But they, the Sadducees, the temple guard, and the priest, were greatly disturbed. And here, if we had theme music underneath the story, all of a sudden we'd hear some minor chords and we'd have the anticipation that something's about to go wrong. Because now, for the first time, the church is about to face an obstacle. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They keep talking about this resurrection and everybody's getting excited about it. And now thousands of people, remember 3,000 in chapter 2, came to know Jesus. And all of a sudden the religious leaders are beginning to think, okay, we're feeling threatened here. I don't like what you're teaching, Peter and John. And so they stop them in this moment because they're disturbed. But then watch the obstacle as it appears, for the first time in verse 3, the church is opposed. The church is being uh, attacked. The church is going through its first difficulty. Everything's going great. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And now we face opposition. Look at, chapter, look at verse 3. It says, And they, these authorities, they seized or they arrested Peter and John. Now remember, this is the face of the church at that point. They are the most well-known people in the church of Jesus Christ amongst those 3,000 or so who've become followers of Jesus. Peter and John are out front, and they've been arrested. And then it goes on to say, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Now stop here for just a second because it's important to know who it is Peter and John are dealing with. The Sadducees, the priest, and, the, and the, uh, the temple guard, they are making up this group of people called the Sanhedrin. This is like the 72-person like supreme military political court that is the authority in that day amongst the Jewish people. Here's what's interesting about the Sanhedrin. They are the exact same people who two months earlier sentenced Jesus to death. And now Peter and John are put in jail. And here's what we learn right out of the gate. Your obedience does not remove opposition. All Peter and John had done is be obedient. Remember, Peter and John are sitting there in jail, and they're thinking, Jesus, you told us to go and wait in the upper room, and we did it. You said the Holy Spirit would come, and he did. And then you told us to go and make disciples, and that's all we've been doing. And yet we're arrested in jail? 
their obedience didn't remove opposition. Now, here's a real danger. Maybe you've let this creep into your mind and you don't even realize it. Sometimes, especially as Americans, we begin to accidentally, gravitationally, we pull toward a good life instead of a godly life. And we think a good life means no opposition, no struggling, no suffering, no difficulties, no hardships. After all, I'm entitled to the pursuit of happiness, right? That means the removal of all these good things. But that's the American way. The Christian way is that we follow a suffering Jesus. And if we're following Jesus and we're pursuing a godly life, then here's what we must know. we got to claim all the promises of Jesus. And guess what one of them is? A promise that he gives us is, in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Peter and John, they are in jail. I can't imagine they're getting their mug shot. You know, they walk in, they make their one phone call, right? They get in the cell and they're sitting there and they're going, now what did we do wrong again? We healed a guy? Is that what everybody's upset about? People are praising God and coming to know him? What are we, why are we here? And there's probably a little self-pity for a while. That's at least the way I would have processed it. We, this isn't fair. We've done everything right. Everything's going wrong. We've been obedient to God and yet we're suffering. But somewhere along that night, I can't help but think that Peter and John together, they begin to have their thoughts get a little darker and a little more gloomy and depressing because it dawns on them that the next morning they will stand before the Sanhedrin, the exact same people who sentenced Jesus to death and on that day he died. And they realize there is at least a chance that the next day this same Sanhedrin court will sentence them to death. And tomorrow they may die. And as they're facing that, they continue to think of the story of Jesus, who they're following. And then they remember, wait a minute. Yes, this Sanhedrin court did sentence Jesus to death. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And they're beginning to remember who it is they follow because they're in the shadow of the resurrection. They can't not talk about it. And they begin to realize this. Wait a minute. This jail, it can't stop what Jesus has planned. This Sanhedrin court, it can't stop what Jesus has planned. Death couldn't even stop what Jesus had planned. And I can't help but they come with this one conclusion. And I hope you just hear this. They came to this conclusion, I am convinced. Because Jesus rose from the dead everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And they can face even an unknown future in front of the Sanhedrin court because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what are they all upset about? What is the Sanhedrin so upset about? Well, look at the next verse and you'll see it. Here's what they're all upset about. It says in verse 4, But many who heard the message of Peter and John, they believed so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Again, we keep getting bigger and bigger. The church continues to grow. It was 3,000. Now it's 5,000. No wonder the Sanhedrin's so upset because they're feeling threatened by this growing faith. Meanwhile, Peter and John spend their night in jail. And the next morning comes. The guard opens the cell, takes both Peter and and John stands them before the Sanhedrin, the most intimidating governmental authority they could have faced. 
Look at it in verse 5. It says, the next day, there they are in their robes on a bench, I envision. The rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. There's Annas, the high priest. He was there. And so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And I can't help but imagine as Peter and John walk into that room, they see their eyes and their eyes lock. They remember you. They remember you, Caiaphas. They remember you, Annas. They remember every one of you. They're Sadducees. Those of you of the temple guard, those of you who are priests, I remember you. I remember you. And each of you are guilty of sentencing our Jesus to death. They know exactly who they're standing before. And they're thinking, how in the world am I standing before the same people who sentenced Jesus to death? And I am reminded that sometimes our opposition is recurring, isn't it? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now where it feels like the same child is struggling. You feel like it's the same weakness in your life that keeps raising its ugly head in some kind of temptation. And just like they experienced the same Sanhedrin trying to sentence them, you may experience the same struggle in your life. And here it is again, and you feel like it's repeating itself just like it felt that way to Peter and John on this day. And now the conversation begins, and this is where it gets great. It says, So they had Peter and John brought before them, and then they began to question them. And they begin with this question. By what power or what name did you, and there's an emphatic you in the original language that's sort of a disdain, like what? By what name did you do this? When they say this, what are they talking about? Here's what's interesting. We're going to see it in the passage in a minute. The crippled man is in the room. And so they're pointing to him and saying, by what power and what name did you do this? As if they've done something wrong and as if his healing is wrong. And watch the response. In fact, before we get there, you may think that I, I want us to, before we get to Acts 4 8, I want us to remember Acts 1 8, because as we are told to be witnesses, you may feel intimidated and think, by what power could I stand before the Sanhedrin? By what power can I be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you remember our memory verse. You may have thought I forgot to start with it today, but I wanted it to be right here in this spot. So would you just, you can remain seated today. We're going to put it on the screen now. But would you say this out loud with me? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Church, say it with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, 8. How do we receive power from the Holy Spirit? And when we receive that power, we become witnesses. This is what's happened to Peter and John. Because watch the next few words. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great few words? Then Peter was filled with with the Holy Spirit. Let me just tell you, you can't face opposition in this world alone. Whatever you're struggling with, you are not strong enough to face it alone. But when you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no opposition strong enough to counter the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter knows that. He stands before this incredible power, and yet for some reason, he is empowered. And he says, if you don't submit to the Holy Spirit's power, the the Holy Spirit's power is going to overpower you. 
So watch the rest of verse 8 there in Acts chapter 4. It says, Peter said to them, and Peter now speaks up for the first time, and he says, listen, I'm going to honor you and give you your title, rulers and elders of the people. And then he questions them. He kind of puts it all in perspective, and he says, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, are you saying we're in trouble for helping people? And then he answers their question, by what name and what power have you done this? And he says, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And then he points at the man, that the man stands before you healed. You're talking about evidence, right? He's able to point at the man who was healed and says, you want to know how this man was healed because you walk by him every day just like we did for the last 40 years and you know he was crippled and yet here he walks, he runs, and he praises God. How do we know that? Because I said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and in the one whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, it is by his power that this man stands before you today. And they're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. This is the kind of power that we were afraid of and that people are starting to believe in. And I don't know what to do with this, but this is very threatening. The Sanhedrin is feeling very threatened. And then Peter continues and he says, oh, by the way, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. He's quoting from Psalm 118. You might write that in your Bibles right there. And then he goes on to say, which has become the cornerstone. You might even write in your Bibles right there, John 19, 11, because he's actually referencing a conversation where Jesus has with Pilate. You remember that conversation when Pilate was gone before so they could get the execution? He's the governing authority for Rome. And it's the conversation between Jesus and Pilate where Jesus tells Pilate, Caiaphas handed me over to you. And his sin is greater than yours. And now Peter and John are standing before that same Caiaphas, and they're going, oh, by the way, you're the one that rejected the stone. His blood is on your hands. Whew, I mean, this is a moment. And, 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 and they're feeling attacked. They're feeling like they're being singled out. But then Peter raises the bar even more. Watch the next thing he says that was shocking then. It's still shocking now. It's one of the more controversial concepts in all of Christianity. Look what Peter says. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Did he just say Jesus was the exclusive way to God? Did he just say that? Because let's be honest, even in 2021, as we sit here today, that sounds offensive to some ears. That feels like a negative thing. That's a negative reality to hear. We have a negative reaction to hear the exclusivity where Jesus says anyone can come, but there is but one way. And as we hear this, we have to remember this wasn't Peter's idea. Peter heard and learned this from Jesus himself. See, it's Jesus who in John 14, 6, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This isn't Peter's teaching. This way through, uh, to God through Jesus, it is not the teaching of the church. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is his message. And here's what's really important, and I think we ought to grapple with this one if we haven't before. 
The reality is we should be open-minded in a lot of areas of life, but not when it comes to the eternity of our salvation and the payment for our sins. When God says he designated Jesus as payment for our sins, the reality is I believe as Christians we should not be disparaging other world religions. I don't think that we should be disparaging other religious leaders. However, no other religious leader is God's only son. No other religious leader ever died for your sin. No other religious leader ever rose from the dead. As Peter said right here, there is no other name. There is only one and one alone who has earned the title Savior of the world. And his name is Jesus. Amen. And as Peter and John stand right there before the Sanhedrin, they're thinking, these guys were so courageous. We could snuff their life out right here, right now. And yet they're saying that apart from Jesus, we will miss salvation. And they misunderstood. They see two men filled with the Holy Spirit. They think they're seeing two men who are being courageous. Because look at the next verse. This is their response. They said, well, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that. Hey, I, at the end of the day, I'd love for LifePoint Churches to be known as a bunch of ordinary people pointing to an extraordinary God. And this is where we get it. Peter and John, they're ordinary. And then it goes on to say, the Sanhedrin, how did they react? They were astonished. Listen, men, can I talk to you for a second? This world doesn't need men who are stronger. This world doesn't mean men, need men who are smarter. This world doesn't need men who are more influential and more impressive. This world needs men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who reorient their entire lives around this wonderful God. <laughs> ladies, ladies, this world doesn't need women who are more super women. This world doesn't need women who are perfect or who can do it all and never let anybody see them sweat, who try and strive for perfection but are really exhausted. What this world needs are women who are filled with the Holy Spirit and reorient their entire life around this wonderful God. And when we do that, we could then receive the greatest compliment anyone in humanity could ever receive. It's found in the rest of that verse. Look at it. As a result of them being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Sanhedrin took note that these men had been with Jesus. Isn't that the greatest compliment? If somebody walks away from you and says, I don't know them well, but man, I can tell they have been with Jesus. You see, the reality is, even though they've been with Jesus, their holiness didn't remove their opposition. Their holiness didn't remove their struggle in this moment. You see, in this moment, even though they are doing what God said, they're doing everything right, everything's still going wrong, and they don't know that they're not about to have their life end in this moment. And here's what we know, eventually they will, but in this moment, they don't know if this is God's timing. Here they are, despite their obedience, despite their holiness, and they're still being opposed. Let me just tell you, the one way you can, you can lower your opposition in this life is to settle for a comfortable life. And I love what Pastor Kevin Queen says about a comfortable life. He says, there may be no more dangerous place on the planet than your comfort zone. 
because it's where you're most at risk of missing out on what you're created for. Peter and John, yeah, they're not comfortable, but they're moving the kingdom of God forward. And in this moment, they step forward. Now look at the next verse. It says, so they ordered, or back it up, but since they could see the man, this is the Sanhedrin, I love this, because they keep glancing out of it, and every once in a while the guy keeps moving, he keeps talking, he keeps kind of fidgeting, they're like, oh, there's the guy that was healed. Like, we could deny God's power except for that guy who's standing over there who for 40 years has been crippled, and now here he stands. The evidence is pretty obvious. So they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, and there was nothing they could say. And then it goes on to say, so they ordered them, Peter and John, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. In other words, they wanted to talk behind their back. They said, we need you to go so we can figure out how we're going to handle this situation. And they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign in healing this man. And we cannot deny it. I love that. The greatest apologetic of the gospel is a changed life. When a life changes, we cannot deny it. It's not us being impressive. It's someone being transformed. And they weren't impressed with Peter and John's message. They were impressed that there was a man who was crippled who was now standing. And they could not deny it. Now look at the next verse that says, but we got to do something because too many people are coming to know about this Jesus and are beginning to follow this Jesus. And we have no answer for this, by the way. We don't know where Jesus' body is. And they keep claiming that he not only rose from the dead, but they saw him personally for 40 days after his resurrection. And people are starting to believe this. We're starting to see strange things that we can't understand. So we've just got to put a stop to this. So they said, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. And then they called them back in again, and they commanded them, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I would love to see Peter and John's reaction in that moment. What? I don't want you to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, because remember, they spent the night in jail wrestling through what all the consequences were of following Jesus. And they have already decided because Jesus rose from the dead, everything's going to be okay. So look what they said in the next verse. It says, but Peter and John replied, well, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. But as for us, let me speak on our behalf, they each say. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We've seen a risen Jesus. We will go to our death claiming that we saw the risen Jesus. And both of them would. In fact, Peter would end up being martyred and he would not recant that he had seen the risen Jesus. They've made a commitment because they've decided because they're in the shadow of the resurrection, everything's going to be okay. And they are committed to this message till their dying breath. And they look before the Sanhedrin and say, nope. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And as a result of that, the Sanhedrin begins to offer these threats. Well, you then you need to know this is going to happen. This might happen. If you do this, this might happen. And they begin to offer other threats. Look at the next verse. It says, after further threats, they let them go. Isn't that odd? And they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened 
for the man was miraculously healed, was over 40 years old. He's still standing there, right? They've dismissed him, and the guy's like, okay, what do I do? Would you leave, please? Because this isn't easy to, de- to, de- to declare that he's not powerful and you're over here healed, right? So you move on. But they tell him, all right, you got to go because everybody's praising this Jesus, and we don't feel like we can go against the popular movement that's happening amongst us right now. So they let Peter and John go. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a 20th century Jewish historian, not a follower of Jesus, who says he believes in the movement of Christianity that the Jewish leaders made one fatal mistake when they had the opportunity to snuff Christianity out in its infancy. And he said this is the one fatal mistake in releasing Peter and John. And the reason he says that is because what they left the jail and did one thing once they left the jail. And that one thing ends up being the spark that causes Christianity to spread like wildfire. And you know what that one thing is? We'll come back next week and we're going to talk about it together. All right. But let me close by talking to those of you who came today. And as you walk in and you sit and we laugh a little bit, we enjoy being with each other. But secretly, maybe the person beside you doesn't even know this, you are hurting. You carried something in with you today and it's very painful. And you feel that opposition, you feel that wrestling, you feel that tension, you feel that discouragement because of something. And maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you did everything right, but everything feels like it's going wrong. Can I just remind you that the Christian God empathizes with sufferers. Even if you've lost a child, our God knows the deep loss that you feel. Even if you've experienced the betrayal of a best friend, Jesus knows that pain too. And even if you have an illness, and maybe you're even facing certain death, Jesus knows the weight of that season. And it is so easy to begin to cave in to the current pain. And let me just encourage you. If you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, everything's going to be okay. Because Christianity reminds us that our God one day will restore everything and everyone who simply calls on the name of Jesus. And that we have a hope in a God who walks with us from now until then. And may we just recognize maybe we're in a jail, maybe we're being arrested, maybe we're standing before a court, maybe we're comparing our life to someone else's, and it's easy to get discouraged, and maybe we can just go a little bit deeper and realize like Peter and John, oh, wait a minute, that's right. Because Jesus rose from the dead, everything's going to be okay. I want to close with these three questions. I would love to encourage you and invite you to wrestle with these three questions. 
this week. First of all, because we know that obedience actually can bring opposition. That's a principle all throughout Christianity. In fact, every period of Christianity, there is the theme of suffering. Because we know that that's true. How am I responding to my difficulties? Is my prayer life demanding God give me a good life or give me a godly life? And finally, is it that I'm expecting a better life than God gave his own son? A better life than he gave his disciples? Number two. Opposition may not be our curse and comfort may not be our cure. Am I willing to endure this difficulty if it is part of God's greater plan? Finally, number three. Third question. Would you pray for opportunities? Man, this is hard. I'll just give you a heads up and say this is much easier for me to say than for you to do. Would you pray for opportunities to share, diffi- to share Jesus in your difficulties more than you pray that Jesus would remove your difficulties? Would you ask yourself, God, despite these difficulties, I'm going to keep praying that he'd remove your misery. I would. But did you notice that he didn't remove the misery for Peter and John, and yet he moved anyway? Somehow he leveraged it for his glory. And would you pray more for his will be done than your pain be relieved? Keep praying for that too, but don't lose sight of what he might be doing through the pain. With that, let's stand together. Would you stand with me? I want us to close by saying our verse together because we can't do this alone. This is all just talk unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit working over us, in us, and through us. And this is what this memory verse is all about. So Life Point, would you say it with me out loud together as we close? Say this with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Let's pray. Father, we know in a room this size full of people that there are inevitably many, many, many people who are wrestling with something hard who are wrestling with something that's got them on their knees and they don't know how they're going to make it forward and go into the future today. They are wondering how they're going to hang on. God, would you just let them know you're near? Father, would you give us the courage to lean into you like we never have? And would we not lose perspective that this is a temporary journey anyway? In the end, you restore all things. And because your son Jesus conquered death, there's nothing you can't conquer And in the end, everything is going to be okay. God, I know that in this place, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you've been faithful in the past. You're going to be faithful now, and you're going to be faithful in the future. So, Lord, would we reorient our hearts and our minds around your faithfulness today? God, would we anchor our hope in you and you alone? I pray it all. In the power of your risen son, Jesus' name, amen.